Welcome to the Recruitment Radio Podcast. Um, my name's Dan Dorp, and every month I'm going to be interviewing a different recruitment leader, getting them to share some stories and some wisdom about their uh, distinguished careers. Um, I'll also be asking them to select uh, four pieces of music and talk us through why they've chosen them, uh, and they'll feature on my monthly playlist um, available on Spotify through the Power Hive network. Um, the playlists I've put together are... Um, Multi-generational, so I've selected tracks from about the last five decades. Uh, multi-genre, um, as long as I like the genre, usually uh, uh, soul, funk, hip-hop, house, drum and bass, uh, disco, techno. Um, not actually uh, rock, David, by the way, but thanks for that. Um, and um, the playlists are also in response to a common disagreement of what music gets played at work. So. They tend to start off pretty chilled and then build from there. I've had a lot of fun putting them together. Um, so uh, this month's guest is a good friend of mine, David Everington. He's had more than 25 years as a business leader and operating partner in the, in the, in the staffing industry. 1995 to 2001, I think you were uh, Tech Partners International, uh, International as Contract Sales Director. I think that's a business that you grew um, to 25 million and you exited via uh, a trade sale to Harvey Nash at the time. Then you went on uh, in 2001 for three years to be the managing director of White and None. Um, I, I think that was a, a gig that you were put in place by a private equity company. Is that right? right. Yeah. Um, uh, that was managing about 35 staff and telecom staffing. Um, and that was really to uh, a turnaround situation and to oversee the strategic acquisition of another staffing company. 2005 to 2008, you were director of uh, Capita IT Resourcing, obviously a, a public company, and you grew that business threefold in your tenure there. And then more recently, you spent seven years as the group chief operating officer of networking people, uh, the MP group, where you, you launched, I think, RPO, exec search divisions, and effectively grew NFI from 2.5 mil to 10 mil in your tenure there. Ultimately, again, you, su you successfully executed a, a management buyout and then bringing things right up to, uh, to date more recently, you're the founder and managing partner of your own business advisory consultancy, which focuses on uh, leadership support, driving innovation and growth uh, initiatives. I know that you're also Chief uh, Operating Officer of a business um, called Triage, which is uh, too complicated for you to explain. If you try to explain to me three or four times, I don't get it, so I'm going to save that one. But I think that it has a very noble uh, moral behind it in terms of uh, wanting to eradicate global poverty. So we'll save that one for another time. But it's a, it's a very impressive CV and certainly uh, a lot of variety to the business challenges that you've had. I kind of wanted to start just by asking you, which one of those you enjoyed the most and maybe why? That's a really um, interesting question because they've all got their, you know, their upsides. Um, I think the thing that I recognised early on in my career at Tech Partners, for example, and I should say with that, I can't take all the plaudits for, for the build and sell of the business, but um, I participated as a shareholder and I started in the business in 95 as a consultant and grew my way up into managerial leadership positions. But it gave me that taste of, you know, fast growth in fast growth markets. And I think what that did is really plant the seed for what I enjoy most. Um, I definitely planned where I've ended up, you know, in terms of the advisory and consulting piece. 
Um, um, why was that was always something you wanted to do earlier? I was exposed to, as part of the, the divestment to Harvey Nash, advisory support that came into the business. And, you know, as part and parcel of that, it really clicked with me that actually, because I had decided that I wanted a career in the sector we're in, that um, having longevity is key. So thinking about your relativity to people in our industry as you get older, um, of course, it made me really clear about the fact that, you know, in my mid to late 40s, I might need to start thinking about how I would be relative to business leaders rather than just still being at the desk, so to speak. You know, by seeing the way in which the advisors had supported the business, it made me quite clear, actually, that that was the line of approach I should be taking, which is actually every job thereafter, with the support of a mentor that I'd engaged with at the time, has been chosen to, to lend, if you like, to them the mix, the fabric of my experience so that I could mean more to people when I'm speaking to them down the road. It's interesting, actually, that you chose to have an advisor yourself quite early on in your career and then have ended up in advisory. So something that I'll, um, I'll note and pick up with you kind of uh, later in the, in the podcast. But let's move on to the first trap that you've selected. I asked you to, uh, to select something from your youth yep. that you got into. Uh, you've selected a corker. Can you can you tell us a little bit what you've chosen and why? Yeah, so Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. I was a teenager at school between 1981 and 85. That whole hip-hop era was kicking in. And um, actually, the background to that was I was, I'd grown up in a hamlet outside of town. You know, going to school in a town was like high octane. So thinking about the the way in which that uh, music was changing at that time as well, it it really gave me a sense of you know I guess ownership of change and and also it brought about independence as well. Uh-huh. So as I was starting to go and do stuff with friends that also liked it, we'd go to London and we'd go to other towns, and um, you know actually reflecting on it, it, it was probably one of the first examples of a record label putting three guys together to make some music. So it wasn't it was more mainstream when I reflect back. But uh, nonetheless, it reminds me really positively of that time. Let's listen to it then. And I'm done to fun, and I guess to a D. You 
see, I got more clothes than Muhammad Ali, and I dress so viciously. I got bodyguards, I got two big guns, I definitely ain't the whack. I got a Lincoln Continental. That was Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, released 1979. Actually, one of the first tracks to include rapping was widely acclaimed with forming uh, the blueprint for, for rap and hip-hop music, like you said at the time, um, and it features the unmistakable guitar rift of... You tell me, Tom. Nile Rogers from Sheik. Oh, there you go, yeah. Yeah, ended up actually in court over it. Um, but um, yeah, a top a top selection there. Thanks, David. Um, you mentioned previously about um, wanting to be an advisory uh, and, and yourself getting... Um, your own kind of uh, business consultant or advisor quite early in your career. Um, there might be quite a lot of recruitment leaders or managers who are considering um, maybe getting some sort of mentorship. Can you start by maybe, you know, giving you me your perspective on your side of the fence? What, what are the main benefits do you think that, that that's, you know, selecting the right mentor or having some kind of uh, non-exec director or, you know, um, business advisor can give a, a, a growing entrepreneurial recruitment. Yeah, sure. Very happy to do that. First things first, before we do that, I never chose to bring the guy in. Okay. Um, I was a re recipient of that. It came along with the, the chairman that had been appointed and, um, and he saw an, a, a need for somebody to come in and help the leadership team around the relationship that they were going to be faced with in terms of the new acquirer. So, you know, as you'll know, you know, most deals that happen in the space aren't a deal that happen and finish on the same day. You know, you have earnouts and naturally you've got to try and keep growing. So it's about how you make sure in the new environment you drive through. So I saw this guy in this scenario and, um, and you know, it, it occurred to me at that moment in time, and I was obviously being coached to a certain extent by him, but build that relationship, you know, learn a little bit more about what he did. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what, what it, what really set in stone with me was the fact that there's a, there's a lot that experience can bring to the table. And, you know, and a, a lot of recruiters are very, very good. Um, particularly in the genre I, I'll specialize in relation to specialist recruitment, very, very good at building and running a desk, but they're not so good necessarily based on the lack of experience yeah. of seeing some of the other things that perhaps somebody that's been doing that work whether it be within recruitment or outside of recruitment will have been exposed to and whether that be you know in relation to how to scale a business or whether that be in relation to how to move into new territories or whether that be how you package your finance up whatever it may how to be manage managers create succession yeah. kind of there are always areas where you know, a, an individual will benefit by some, you know, definite um, experience that exists elsewhere. And um, funnily enough, the guy that um, that became my mentor is a guy by the name of Stuart Rogers. Um, he's a serial entrepreneur in the space. He's done lots of divestments and acquisitions. Um, one of the ones he's most notable for, and, you know, he's I've been of late is where he's been chairman of Morgan McKinley. But he, he talks about the subject of, um, you know, the different types of NEDs a business should consider. And I think for, um, a business owner or a business leader, one of the, one of the key mistakes is often made is that they, they bring somebody in who's done it before, but they don't really know what they want them for. Yeah. And in actual fact, um, I would always advise somebody to think carefully about in, in your plan, you know, what are some of the key things that you're looking to try and achieve in the next year to three years, for example. And, 
package some of that up in a way that you can bring in somebody with experience that might be focused on growth or might be focused on helping you into certain types of clients or might be focused on, you know, taking a bill, a, 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 a business to deal, uh, you know, and dealing with, you know, the type of organizations around it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there are lots of things that, you know, an individual will not know about in that scenario. And of course, you know, there are lots of new people, new organizations, corporate finance, et cetera, that, you know, you're going to get exposure to. And having somebody to help you through that process is really invaluable. What about from the other side of the fence? So almost like the same question, but from the other angle, I mean, you know, you must get quite a few approaches. I know you've got uh, probably uh, a half dozen very carefully selected um, companies or individuals that you work with uh, and, and help support. Um, and I often think, you know, it's actually the due diligence of um, the, the business advisor themselves to make sure that they're saying yes and when they can truly, really add a lot of value. Yeah. What are some of the things that you look for um, in um, basically, if you like, a, a subject or someone to work with when they're asking potentially for your help? What are you looking for to, for you to say, yeah, I'm going to commit my, 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 my time and resource. You might be paying for it, yeah, but, sure. but I'm here to add value. It's a very personal thing. So, you know, I think it applies to anybody that does the sort of work I do, which is you, you to a certain extent, get the freedom to choose the things you want to work on. And that's not to say that there's a big line outside the uh, nightclub to get in. It's, you know, it's relational. You're always building contacts, you're always networking. But but fundamentally, what I look for are things that are going to complement where I think I can add value the most. And this comes back to this, and it was, I was at a presentation Stuart made, which is the different versions of an NED. You know, I thought when I first, you know, when I was first coming to market, then I might be somebody that could, you know, be an NED that might sit on the board. But there are plenty of people out there with lots of experience, 10, 20 years plus, of being that chairman. And in actual fact, the PE firms would look at somebody like me, for example, as an operating partner that can help around the subjects of growth, um, structure, strategy, for example, and see me as somebody that's a little bit more likely to roll my sleeves up and get involved. And therefore, you know, it's only right for me when I'm looking through my own review of any potential opportunity is that what they're trying to do yeah because if they're not they're not going to get the best out of me and similarly i won't enjoy it as much either so you do learn that unless you are aligning purposes unless you're aligning your strengths it's um it's not long before one or other of the party um may be faced with a conversation that says actually it's not for me Mm. the you know, the fact is we all try and get a bit older and a bit more experienced and a bit more mature about the sort of conversations you want to have to get into those um, situations. Um, but there's, there's, you know, I don't think any of us would be far away from scenarios that we can think of where it didn't quite work out, you know, for the reasons you might want it to. But more often than not, I go through a very clear focus around where my strengths lay and I'm very focused on making sure that I get that tied down with the individual that I'm talking to. So I bring value around something that's finite. Great stuff. Let's um, get back to the music. Second track, I asked you uh, a tune that reminds you of your early career, rising through the ranks in recruitment and uh, and some of the different um, uh, management directorships that you kind of had. What did you choose and why? Juncture in time, I was uh, was living up north and uh, I'd just um, gone through a, a new experience in, in that I'd had a child 
And um, at the same time, um, you know, in the background, in the context of music, the likes of Oasis and Blur, Blur were battling it out. And um, in actual fact, I, I kind of, as much as I loved those, um, I just had a bit of a hankering for um, the way that Paul Weller was doing his music. So he released an album called Stanley Road. There's a few songs on there I really liked, but one resonated with me in terms of uh, Changing Man. Um, I think that was a lot, of, there was a lot of stuff behind that because, you know, lots was happening to me at the time. But, but at the same time, there was a line in there I absolutely love. And it, it actually made me reflect on, you know, that guy that was growing up and, you know, experiencing new things, going from villages to towns to cities and, you know, traveling around. And, uh, it, it was our time is on loan, only ours to borrow. What I can't be today, I can be tomorrow. And it just made me think a lot about the fact that, Parameters change. You know, you can really push out things you do. And I remember back to, you know, being on an eight grand salary in a sports shop, bossing a couple of kids around. And, uh, and of course, I used to look to other people who were making loads of money up in the city and think to myself, my God, you know, how can I be that? You know, roll forward. And all of a sudden I was looking back thinking a very similar thing back in another direction. So things change. And uh, this was a really good memory from that time. Lovely analogy. I like that. Let's listen to it. album Stanley Road released in 1995 like I was telling you I'm not massively knowledgeable about indie music generally but to say Paul Weller was uh, um, definitely you know one of the first tracks I remember driving around when my mate first passed his driving test was uh, Aha Oh Yeah and um, I think uh, Into Tomorrow and some of, some, some of those kind of tunes so um, always really sharp on the old tailoring in, in his suits as well yeah. great track Right, I wanted to tap into some of your, you know, your vast recruitment knowledge. It seems to me that you've been um, through lots of different challenges. You, I mean, you, you, you've been uh, through an MBO, you've been in private equity, 
you've been a director of public business. So there's definitely a few investment processes that you've been on various different sides of the table at. And I think that, you know, a lot of recruitment leaders or budding recruitment leaders are, are building their businesses, you know, ultimately share a dream that one day they can realize that shareholder value and um, and sell up. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, what would be some of the top tips you might be able to share that individuals who um, are, you know, uh, recruitment owners or managers who are building teams and businesses now, you know, what should they start to design or build into their business yeah. with, you know, that, that maximizes that chance of getting that shareholder value and actually getting a successful kind of investment or exit away? I'll give you an analogy, really, which is it's very much aligned to, to being a, a specialist recruiter. And, you know, one of the things that I've always talked to people about is, you know, in the process of um, selling and being a specialist, you've got to imagine, if, if you like, what it is your quarry does. Okay, so you've got to um, make yourself relative and, you know, you've got to share insights in order to be relevant. And I think it applies exactly the same way when it comes to, you know, you thinking about, you know, what it is that people value. Ultimately, there are participants that are involved in sale of a business, whether it be, you know, the acquirer themselves or the potential suitor or, or the corporate finances firms, et cetera, that revolve around that. Understanding what drives value is one of the key things that needs to happen in the first instance, because actually there's a misnomer that it's all about EBITDA, right? And uh, and value is about what you can um, extract against that EBITDA in terms of the multiples. And, you know, having really clear focus on, you know, some, some key grouping elements like culture, strategy, and operations, for example. You know, when you, when you look at all the subheadings that are attached to that, you can see that, in all the deals that you see happen, there are reasons for why the multiples take place. And, and it's not just because somebody, you know, had a stonking year on the, on the EBITDA front. Culture is the biggest thing, right? You know, ultimately, you, you hear the analogy around um, culture eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think if I cast my memory back across all the firms, all the, the what I've worked in, or the firms that I've advised and done projects for that stand out to me, there is a common theme in relation to culture being prevalent. They're all different, but actually the one common thing is that their culture was solid. And it's not really easy to gain culture, right? You know, ultimately you can't just, you know, press the button and we've got a culture. It comes from a number of different things. And, and actually it's designed. It's, it can right. be, it can be designed. It's in, it's inherent in the behaviors of people. It's how the leader behaves in, and drives the business. You know, there's a whole host of things in relation to the industry that that may serve as well. You know, there are ways in which one can, you know, create that culture. But fundamentally, the business owner or the business leader needs to understand that the buyer might see that as part of the unique differentiation of the business. How would a buyer measure culture, though? Because if you're saying, and I agree with you, culture, you know, is fundamental and it creates value. Um for someone to invest in a business, how would an incoming investor assess the strength of culture? Well, the, what they're looking for really is adherence to the, the key elements. So if you're thinking about a business leader that's setting a, um, a mission, a vision, a strategy, the next layer down, you know, the senior leadership team participate in that and adopt that, you know, and exude that 
similarly around the values of the culture. And also, you know, the, the things the company does, it's MO. So if it's got a product or a style of doing things or it's really well known for, what, what, what will happen is when someone's doing their due diligence, they're coming in and they're talking to all the relevant people in the business to see whether or not it's consistent. They're measuring it. They're looking at the financial elements of it, but they're actually looking, they're, they're interviewing people to see whether or not they're reflective of the way in which the, the culture looks from the outside. Does it live that way inside? And is everybody that we're meeting reflecting on that? So how you do this? You know, how are you approaching new clients? What's your strategy associated with your go-to-market? You know, what's your values in your business? You know, the whole things that come with it. And they're looking for a consensus understanding of the fact that actually the business lives the way it seems to be presented. I guess that reflects also in the retention of staff as well. You know, ultimately that's a that's a good measurement of how strong the culture is, is if if it's retaining people and therefore successfully kind of growing, then you know it gives a Yeah, I mean confidence. it's a big lead actually. I mean I you know there is lots of schools of thought about grow your own and and you know a buy-in experience um, resource but you know the the measurements um, around loyalty and longevity do tend to be when people feel aligned to culture and if you're growing your own and people are following best example from other people in the business naturally they start exuding that and you know that that enables you know for you to gain that loyalty and longevity but you'll see it coming. I've seen people come in as experienced guys who basically are like, this is my own. I love it. I really relate to these people. And you see them sticking way over and above the amount of time that, you know, you would normally see an experienced yeah. consultant be around. Great stuff. Okay. Third piece of music for today. Um, this is something that means something to you personally. What have you selected and, and why? In It's a record that um, brings about a year of memory, actually. Um, 2012, I think when I reflect back on 2012, you know, it was the year that the UK had its Olympics. That was a feel good year, right? You know, from an austerity point of view, um, to be in a situation where we've been feeling so down for a while to then see that actually we can put on a major show and win a load of medals was fantastic. Similarly, where on a professional level, you know, the business that I was working at NP Group was going through some significant growth. We'd launched in new regions. We'd launched new products. You know, I was experiencing lots of change and lots of development, lots of challenges at the time, but was loving it. And I guess, you know, the most important thing is that um, my son was born that same year. So my wife was way cooler than me. She still is. She's still way cooler than me. (laughs) Will always be way cooler than me. She's, you know, the, the human jukebox when it comes to her selection of music, things she loves and what she's into. And she got me into um, listening and liking Pearl Jam. And um, one of the albums that they had, which was Rearview Mirror, had a, a song in it called Alive. And funnily enough, when we, we discussed this prior to our son being born, let's play some music in the birthing room. And track two. So he, we went into the hospital. I parked my car. I went up to the room, put the music on, and he came out by the second track, middle of the second track, and it was Alive. And, and I just thought that, aside from the fact that it was very relevant, and yeah. very switched on of him to come, it was, it was also that, you know, he came out very quickly. So really strong record for me that year. Great story. Let's, uh, let's give it a listen. Song. She said, 
Alive by Pearl Jam. You're, uh, you're now dropping grunge rock bombs from the early 90s. Um, released in 1991, written by guitarist Stone Gossard and Eddie Vedder on, uh, on vocals. Um, very touching story behind it as well. Probably the first birth plan I've ever, I've ever heard that's actually, uh, you know, literally come off to a tee. I think so, my wife was hoping for my son to come out like that. <laughs> given the old, rocks, bit, yeah. given <laughs> the old uh, rock fingers. <laughs> it wasn't the case. Okay. <laughs> You've, uh, you've been in the industry over 25 years. I just want to kind of consider the person that you are with all the knowledge that you have now and look back. You know, what advice would you give to a, a younger version of yourself now? Business isn't as mysterious as you, you think it is. I think I grew up with a deference to authority. So I was scared of teachers, policemen, doctors, nurses, the whole stuff that came with society. And, and it gave me a natural aversion to challenging authority. From a business point of view, of course, what that meant was I was less likely to, to kind of push the envelope with, with clients earlier on um, in my career. It also saddled me with the imposter syndrome, you know, over, over my career, actually, where you kind of think someone's going to catch up with you at some stage, which I've now got over. But I think what I'd be saying to myself is that, you know, it's really important. And, and, and I should say, actually, in my first seven years in recruitment, I don't think I met anybody or hardly anybody from any other recruitment firm, right? Very focused in, you know, the business I was in. Really insular then. Yeah. Keep yourself to yourself. And everyone but there were names. Enemy. There were yeah. names of firms, and you know, you talking there were your competitors and yeah. all that stuff, and kind of like you got you talked about them in in a way like they were mysterious creatures, you know, in a way. But but in actual fact, you know, one of the things that I I'd be saying to myself right now is open yourself up to everything that's out there. I think I've learned that. I managed to push my parameters significantly over the years and, and doing business today that I would never imagine in a month of Sundays that I would be doing back then. The people that I get to talk to today, which is much more wide and varied in our industry, as you'd expect now, there's loads of value, there's loads of colour, there's loads of interest in all the things that come out of that. There's also loads of ideas, you know, there's loads of knowledge that, you know, you can pick up. And I think I'd be saying to myself, probably twofold really, you know, push yourself, talk to people that, you know, you, you, you're going to learn from get mentors in as early as you can do in your career because it, it isn't just about me being a business leader or a business owner and being in a scenario where I need somebody who's done that before. You can have mentorship in loads of different ways, you know, if you want to pursue a certain gym, area of your career. Right, spiritually, yeah. you know, etc. Et lots of yeah. things you can pick up, people that have got that prior knowledge and you make relationships with and just, you know, just learn from them. And I think I wasn't so – I was so – so focused. I'd also probably tell myself that um, specialising in Windows um, NT351 wasn't a good idea at the time. It took me down the path of doing a lot of stuff at desktop level. And, you know, although I did it well as a contract consultant, 70, 80 runners at a time, on three-month churns, it was like a thankless task. So oh, I think right. I'd have specialised a bit more back then, but uh, I made the best of uh, the fist of it at the time. But I definitely think I'd be saying to that 
that person there, you know, I'd be coaching them to say, look, you know, I know you grew up isolated, you know, in terms of being out of town and all the other stuff, but these people aren't mysterious, they're just humans like you. Go find out their problem, go and solve the problem, bring insights if you can specialise, do something that's going to add value and solve the problems. On a, a lighter note, the industry, I think, matured and grown up a bit more. And I, when I think back to um, some of the older school management techniques or, or uh, engagement techniques, I think in this day and age, you know, at best would be seen as very um, politically correct, probably more like sackable offences, actually. So without naming any names, because I don't want to get anyone in trouble here, I just thought I'd ask you for a little quip or a funny story from uh, from back in the day or any any time over any of your 10 years at some of your staffing businesses. Anything you'd want to share with us? Well, I think, I think you know, ultimately, I was exposed to all the same sort of stuff most of us were, right? You know, fines, people doing things to other people's phones. You don't um, sell a tape over the old phones. I mean, that was, that, that, was, it's not working. that was actually reasonably standard. Um, you know, people having their, their chairs removed, the phone taped to their head and, you know, all that sort of stuff were things that I was exposed to. Hot sauce and sandwich? I didn't actually ever get that one. Oh, no. I know I never taped the phone to my head, incidentally. That primarily because I think, you know, there were some consequences attached to that. But, but you know, I think the, the thing that makes me, when I think back fondly about it, well, um, there was a lad that I used to work with, one of the first firms I was at, Tech Partners, who... I hired out of university, and I'm I'm telling this story really because it's so random, like yeah. what the what what he did. But I had a I had a small office, um, probably no bigger than six by six um, meters big. I had about eight of us in it, and we're all on the phone one day, and this lad who we knew as Rex, who, who Rex, who I won't say his real name because people go look him up, but Rex works today at LinkedIn as a, a global account manager to the recruiting firms, but Rex. He was a bit random, and I remember us. I remember us all being on the phone doing the stuff we do in our work. And uh, I look up, and Rex is in one corner. I should add, by the way, Rex is from Manchester, so it all tie nicely with oh, the high school. Everything, thanks. But Rex was. Uh, that's going to explain what my accent is in a second, um, <laughs> in advance. But Rex was stood in the corner with a piece of paper that had four paper clips on it, and and in one corner he stood in the corner and he dropped it and it landed on the floor, and then he picked that up. And he moved to the next corner, did exactly the same thing. Meanwhile, of course, everyone's seeing this happening and the phones are slightly, slowly going down. He gets to the third corner and, and then the final corner. And everyone's phones are down, just looking at him. And of course, I say to him, Rex, what the hell are you doing, mate? What's going on? He's like, uh, I'm just checking to see if gravity is the same in every part of our office. <laughs> Was Rex the top pillar? Rex was a, a resourcer. He was superb resourcer. <laughs> resourcer. Yeah. He was a superb resourcer, really strong, could deliver anything, and uh, came out to work with me in the States when uh, when we went out and worked in Boston. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say to him, like, I've got no – what you just said, like, can everybody just erase it from your minds and can we just all get on with it? Because I don't think we're going to be able to get that – Get that thing, and this was reasonably standard behaviour by Rex. It takes all sorts of work. It was one hundred percent. It takes all sorts. He was a great guy in our industry. So uh, good stories. Right, nearly all we've got time for today. A final track though, track number four. I asked you to choose a track that you would play on a Monday morning, maybe a dreary Monday morning in England, where you know you haven't slept well, you've uh, you've broken your own rule and having a whole bottle of wine on, on a Sunday. 
which resulted in an argument with your missus. You got up, went to your car, someone's keyed your car as well. You know, you're driven in and uh, literally your, your whole sales floor has that really kind of, it's Monday demeanor. And you've got to choose a track, you know, to get more pumped up and jumping and, and ready to, uh, to attack and, uh, and hit the phones. What did you choose? I, 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 your build-ups just make me laugh because I'm going to remove my shoelaces and belt and uh, <laughs> make sure I don't go anywhere on my own. Do you know what? I nearly gave this, this to you at, at Tech Partners every single day, Monday or otherwise. At the beginning of the day, they used to play Mission Impossible soundtrack and it was a real rally call, fun as well. Right? You know, people knew what it was about. Um, we used to get people's blood up and they want to go for it, you know. But But it actually wouldn't have given you and me the the thought that I wanted to go through really around this because I think from a point of view of you know the experience of being a recruiter coming into the market the market's really tough yeah. right forget all the stuff you said about Sunday and the misses and the bottle of wine the, and the job itself the job itself is a tough that. job yeah right anyone who wants to come into the industry you know it's a climb up to base camp at Everest just to get to do the job every week, right? So some people thrive on that and love it. Other people see Monday as a beginning of that trek again. And um, and I think, you know, always having been in the, you know, the, like the mindset of being a specialist, I've always been somebody that's thrived on building knowledge and thrived on sharing knowledge with clients, insights, you know, building that relationship, not just going through that, you know, really um, vanilla mundane way of trying to pull a job, but actually going and sharing that knowledge and, and actually, it's made me think about this track. The track I've chosen, just to demonstrate that I'm eclectic and I've got a range of tastes and I'm current, oh, yeah, is Giant by Calvin Harris and Reg and Bone Man. Let's, uh, let's give it a play. Calvin Harris and uh, Rag and Bone Man. It's a great uplifting tune. 
pretty current as well. Released only earlier this year. So I think Rag and Bowman's pretty busy this year. Well, I checked out some of his gigging schedule. He's playing in many of the festivals all over the world, including one of my favourites, which is, which is the, uh, the Montreux Jazz Festival, which has been running since 1967. I've actually got... Um, Two years before I was born. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You're showing your age. I know I am, 50 years. Very publicly. Right? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the date as well and the address you can send the presents. <laughs> are, you a, are you a festival sort of guy? Mm, I'm kind of aspiring one. I lived in Suffolk up until recently, and I got literally over the road. It's latitude, and in my postcode, so we used to get tickets around that. I've been there with my kids. Actually. Yeah, so we, that we, was hard work. we went. Yeah, we went there with our kids last year, and that was hard work. It was, <laughs> Never it was like off putting, <laughs> off putting to go to festivals, but to, and also you kind of festivals are the bit that kind of makes you feel like being a kid. But um, but of course you end up realizing you've got responsibility of the other kids, and then you lose that um, that thing. But no, I'm not a, a regular goer, but I'm an aspiring goer. Fantastic selection of music today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming in today and sharing your insights. And yeah, best of luck in the future. Thanks, David. Cheers.